I couldn't help but notice the theme in our singing this morning, the greatness of God. God is great and greatly to be praised. And all God's people said, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Peter alluded to the fact that we will take these three weeks before a formal launch week to study in John chapter 15. A great passage of scripture, favorite to many, talks about the vine. By God's grace, we will endeavor to discuss it as dependence upon God in our meditation today. Abiding in God, if he gives us grace next week. And concluding with bearing fruit for God. First 11 verses in John chapter 15 read as follows. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burn. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, and I remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. May God bless the reading of his words. Let us pray together. Our Father God, we are truly dependent upon you. Whether we acknowledge that fact in any moment or given moments of our life, it is a true statement, and we rely on you and are dependent upon you this morning. And we concur with Brother Jerry's prayer, Lord, that you speak today and that we are all listeners. Touch our hearts, conform them to your will, and may your name be praised. In this we have all our confidence and all our hope. In the name of our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, I like to pay attention to uh, cliches or phrases or words. I love to go through in the Proverbs. And one of those cliches you hear a lot is, God helps those who help themselves. You know, I love to think about these things. You know, sometimes when I'm alone or when people say these things, the next part of what they're saying, I don't quite catch as much because I'm like, I'm thinking about it. Because usually you use a cliche like that and now everything afterwards is true. So... Here we go. I proved it by the cliche, now here we go. 
And that happens a lot. It happens in our lives. I hear it with children. I hear it in business. I hear it all over the place. You know, you need to do this good work because God helps those who help themselves. And I was wondering, how true really is that? And we're not going to do an entire exegesis on that cliche or a theological breakdown of that, but I would say it's true as far as it goes. There's some truth to it. It's why usually things become repeated over and over. There's some truth to it, but I'm going to propose for our meditation this morning that the question is more, is that God helps those who ask. If we repeated the phrase more often that God helps those who ask, it would be much more true. But why is it? that we are so prone to go to the first one. Because even when I say that God helps those who ask, I can feel that we're kind of like, uh, i got to think about that. Are you sure? Let's just see where this goes. I'll let you know if I agree after about 30 minutes or so. But the first one, we're, yeah. Because as a people, as humanity, as the way God put us, we kind of feel like, you know what, what kind of people do we like? If we're interviewing somebody, if we're trying to see who we want to bring on the team, we want self-starters. We want people who don't ask for a lot of help, who know what they're doing, can get it done by themselves with just a little bit of direction. Cast a vision and then let them go. We don't want to be bothered by someone who is constantly asking. Have you ever had this type of person? You're finally getting down, you're getting something done, and oh yeah, and you help, and then you get down and you haven't even found where you are at again in their back. Even when we start to give suggestions, maybe you ought to get all, group all your questions at one time and meet me at 4 o'clock. I can't do this back and forth all day. That's the way we think, and we attribute to God that he is the way we are. Versus, let me think how God thinks and become that way. I'll give you the conclusion right now. I didn't intend to do this, but you know, God wants people who ask him a lot and all the time. He's not interrupted. He's not bothered. He is blessed and honored. It's our problem when we don't ask. It's our pride, our self-confidence, God is not disappointed. Here's what I wrote down in my notes. These are my own thoughts as I was reading different things. God is not disappointed in our need, or another word is in our weakness, but rather is moved by our weakness. God wants us to acknowledge our weakness and to turn to him. Another thought for us, if some of, sometimes one thought rings better for someone else than another, is that God does not begin at the end of our abilities. So we think we're honoring God by saying, I'm going to work as far as I can, do as much as I can, and then when I can't do any more, then I'm going to turn to God. God is not honored when we turn to him at the end of our abilities. He is honored when we realize that our abilities come from him, and we turn to him at the beginning. Now, some here might go, well, I already uh, knew that, um, so uh, why are we here? I think we're here because we're so prone to forget 
And God created the idea of coming together to remind ourselves of those truths that we already know, but that slip through our fingers, that slip through our mind, that deviate from our heart because he has left the prince of this earth to tempt us. And we have a fallen nature and we need to be reminded. So we make no apologies for reminding ourselves that today we're going to be talking about our dependence upon God, not ourselves and not our abilities. So in John chapter 15, the context is, I think, important to us. If you start looking at John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, you have what's called kind of the last discourse. The reason it's called that, it's the last time Jesus discusses things with his disciples. We have him coming through. We have the Last Supper where Jesus is with his disciples for the last time. Most likely it is a Thursday night and he is going to be betrayed later on and he is going to be crucified on Friday. So the context here, what we read, is Jesus roughly 24 hours-ish before his crucifixion. Last time with his disciples, he's had three years and now he's together with them for a final time. They're alone, they're spending time together, and things are happening. Now, if we know anything about life, we would say, all right, Jesus was telling them to, for three years, talking to his disciples. And I want to read it all. I want to know it all. But wouldn't it be really, really cool to know what did he feel they needed to know the last time they were together? The last time. John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He taught them something by doing something. The humility that Jesus was exhibiting to them to wash their feet. It blew them away. In John chapter 14, he leads them in the discussion of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send you the Holy Spirit. So he teaches them in John 13, the humility shows them that, that the master became the servant. In John 14, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And in John 15, we begin with, and these chapter breakdowns are ours. This went through. This wasn't like this for the disciples. They didn't take a quick break, have a little drink, and say, okay, let's turn to 15th chapter. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. For a guy like me, that's a little bit of a difficult uh, passage. I'm not a farmer. I see Zola here. So uh, outside of my association with Attila, his brother, my knowledge of vines and vineyards would be next to nothing. Now it's just slight step above. But that wasn't the case with the disciples. They were well acquainted with the themes of the vineyard and the vine. Turn with me if you like. If not, just pay attention. Isaiah chapter 5. A handful of verses. The prophet Isaiah saying that this way, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one, God, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but he yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, what did it yield Only bad. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. 
I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And it's important for us to understand that he gave us the answers to his own analogy. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. So the owner of the vineyard is God Almighty. And the vineyard is the house of Israel. They understood this concept. And so it made sense to them. But I would think they might have wondered, why are you bringing this up to us now? If anybody's acquainted with that God Almighty is the owner of the vineyard and that Israel is the vineyard, we are. But notice what Jesus said here. He didn't start with, remember Israel, you are the vineyard. He said, I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He's bringing in this concept. He just talked about the Holy Spirit, the idea of God being the gardener, not just the owner. Before, he was the owner. The gardener as well is he's also bringing in the idea the Holy Spirit was going to prune. But for us for today, it is I, Jesus Christ, Yeshua, who's sitting with you here right now, the Messiah, I am the true vine. The branches and the shoots are individual believers. If you will, in the context of the Old Testament, individual Hebrews who had faith in the coming Messiah. God is the owner. The triune God is the owner of the vineyard. Father God, for our purposes here today. And the vineyard is the collection of Israel or the collection of all believers, the church. But the vine, The vine where it all comes from is Christ. So how does the Trinity work in this idea? Is God the Father willed it, the owner of the vineyard? Christ procured it as the vine in whom all things are connected, and the Holy Spirit sustains it as he prunes and maintains it. I am the vine. Verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Get this part, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, now we're always taught, you know, be careful with these you know, kind of always words, never, nothing, everything. But we're sitting here and we're being taught by God's word. No branch can bear fruit by itself. No branch, can't do it, nobody anywhere can bear any fruit on its own. Apart from me, you can do not something, not less than you could have, nothing. Now that kind of appalls our conscience. I mean, we can kind of go, uh-huh, yeah, I get that theologically. But think about it. 
Do you really believe that apart from God, you can do nothing? I mean, nothing. If we do the infinite regression backwards, we're going to get with, could you have birthed yourself? No. Could you have brought yourself, conceived yourself? Could you breathe? Can you think? We pray all the time for God to restore our health to do these things because in those moments we get that unless God wills it, we can't do it. But when we're healthy and things are going well, we just think, well, I'm going to apply myself. Here's what I'm going to do at Tuesday at 2 o'clock, and I am going to do it. If I just pray more, I'm going to do this. If I just talk to this person, this is going to happen. We revert right back to self-confidence. It is a healthy thing for us to embrace the idea that apart from the vine, we can do nothing. We'll hit this in two ways. John 3.16 and 2 Corinthians 5.21, two of my favorite verses. We cannot bring ourselves into relationship with God. The big issue for all mankind is who created us, and if it is God Almighty, how do we get in contact with Him? Because it sure seems like there's something broken. People are hurting each other. We feel pain. Even people that have a concept of God are depressed and hurting and broken and have a lack of a vision. Something is wrong here. In the here, how do we bring this together? And we're not going to talk about that at length, so I pray that God's Spirit can bring us together in this idea, is that we are here and God is here. How do we come together? For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. We are on the road to death. We have been born, and the minute we're born, we're dying. God sent his Son. Apart from the vine, we cannot have eternal life. We cannot have what we are created for, a relationship with God himself. We ran away, and God came to save us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we who don't know righteousness could become the righteousness of God in him. If you do not know Jesus Christ, as your Redeemer, as your Savior. He came to substitute himself for the punishment of the cross, the blood that was needed. And apart for us coming to Christ, repenting on our knees, acknowledging the fact that we are sinners and he is holy, and we want Christ to be standing in front of us. Say, Lord, don't look at me. God the Father, don't look at me. Please, Look at me through Jesus. Apart from that, we can do nothing. If you do know Jesus Christ, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart to go back to that beginning. To go back to the beginning. How did I get where I'm at? If I'm held by his grasp, I got there because of the love of Christ shed in the person of Jesus Christ's blood on a cross. For me, a sinner. Not because I got almost there, so close to being perfect and righteous and holy, and God just needed to sprinkle a little bit of his blood to help me out. Destitute, wretched, 
Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I believe, he says, who can save me from this body of sin? And the scholars debate, is he talking about himself before a Christian or is he talking about himself as a believer? Because he says, there is nothing good in me. Nothing. You're saying, wait, if he's a believer, the Holy Spirit is in him. I think he's talking about it as a believer. And he went at it and he said, even as a believer, the sin that is inside of me so overwhelms me, who can save me from this body of sin? And we go back only Christ. And then we move on and we say we've handled the critical issue. We've been saved by Jesus Christ. Now, how do we live in him and how do we grow in him? We need dependence on God for our life as well. I would like us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We just spoke briefly about Paul in, in, in his letter to Romans. In the letter to 2 Corinthians, uh, basically a fallen church, a broken church, a hurting church, issues beyond issues, Paul relates to them in the second chapter, in in the second book, in the 12th chapter, and he says it this way, starting in verse 7. To keep me from being conceited, me here is being Paul. He just talked about all the great gifts he has. And to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I will delight in my weaknesses. For when I am weak, then he is strong. My friends, this is a lifetime battle. We fight against that with everything in our natural being. I will pay lip service to that, but it will be difficult for me to live this way. Think back to your time when you were broken before God and you accepted him, if you will, your first love. A time when Christ's spirit entered into you and brought you into your knowledge of eternal life and salvation. From death to life, from blindness to sight. The idea was our relationship with God was high. Our competence in the works of Christianity or in the abilities to help others in the way was low. Our relationship with God was high. That was all we were relying on. Our competence and our abilities We're low. But as we go through life, take 20, 30 years, we're in the church, we're in Sunday school, we started in the kitchen, maybe we're here in Sunday school, then we went back here and we wanted to do things. And all of a sudden, 25 years later, as we start talking about all of our experiences in the church and what I've read and what I now know, and we've developed competencies. Did you see the young man? He was here, then he was in Sunday school. Now look at him, he's over here. The competencies are higher. And guess what happens? Our competencies are higher And our relationship often goes lower. The challenge of life with us is the teeter-totter issues. When one is up, the other one tends to go down. And as we progress along, well, God clearly doesn't want me to bother with 
this with him again. I've had 20 years now. I am now fully competent to handle this on my own. I will only bother God a little later. Brian and I were chatting just this week, you know, about the idea of being nervous in front of a church where you're singing and you have to do these things. You know, now, 20 years later, I'm less nervous, so I don't ask the Lord to help me because I've learned how to not be nervous. Isn't God glorified that we don't ask him for help before we get up? Because we're good at it now. Thanks for the input, Lord. I think I've got it now. I make a little light of it, probably to save me from crying. Because when I think about my life, I've got it now, Lord. Thanks a lot. Just jump in if you see me going a little off. Really? Really? Now we know that there's a father of lies, because how could I believe that? How could I believe that? Listen to my words, listen to my language, and you'll hear how often I believe that. Brother, sister, friend, if you hear me doing that, I authorize you all right now. Hug me, slap me a little gently on the cheek, give me a kiss, whatever, help me out. Because if we do not save ourselves from that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we will go nowhere. You know, these issues of backsliding or falling back from our first love, this is what the scripture is talking about. When it talks about the ideas of apostatizing, it is how can we believe something different than what we believed at the beginning? I needed God completely, wholly, completely, and now we add God. The big issue in America right now is that we've got it. We add God to our lives instead of sprinkling our personalities within the will of God instead of vice versa. A thought I had that I wrote down for myself is our success in this life will be determined. And use success loosely. I'm talking about God's success in our life will be determined by one of three things. Our reliance on either ourselves, the group that we are with, or God. And I will tell you that we are prone to do the first two. Those of us that are extreme type A's, Fully confident, hard workers, the epitome of the Protestant work ethic will end up at number one, self-reliance. Those that are more consensus builders, like to be a little bit helpful, may make it to number two where it's the group. The group will make it. We together, by the way, this new unnamed body will make it together. We will make it. we got 150 of us. We're going to make it together. That should be enough. And watch out if we get to 250, because then we're going to be storming. Thanks, Tracy. Reliance on God is where we all need to get. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. We've been talking about the concept of sanctification, growing in Christ is only done in Christ and with Christ. Back to John. As you can tell, I'm leaving some room for my friends to hit most of John 15 with abiding and bearing works. But look at what's going on just in John. We talked about this idea of asking God, that God wants that. Go ahead and find your concordance and look up how many times the word ask is in the Bible Take a look at the content. I'm just going to do this briefly for you. Let's just look in John. 
John, let's just even start real nearby. We won't go any further than just a little forward and just a little back. John 15, 7. Let's how about start right in our own text for today. 15, 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Wow. John 14. Go back just a little bit left. Verse 13. And I, is Christ speaking, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Son may bring glory to the Father, you may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 15, John 14. I wonder what John 16 might say. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. All of that is found in the last discourse. All of those phrases, ask and you shall receive, ask in my name and it will be done. Ask whatever you will in my will. Yet up till now you have not even asked and you will ask and it will be done. Talk about Jesus trying to put the importance of asking on his disciples. He was about to send them out. And believe me, these people were going to need to be asking because when he put the disciples together... He did not start with a committee and go, I need the 12 most talented people out there. I mean, I need the Hebrew of Hebrews. I need the ones that know. I need the ones that are practically Christians already. Those are the ones I'm going to get. Now, he went and got these fishers and these guys and, you know, a ragtag group. He wanted them to ask. Because what did Christ say in John 14? That my Father is glorified when you ask and we do these things. Maybe I led you astray. I would like to throw in James. Um, James is kind of neat. James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, uh, paraphrasing, will say, You do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask amiss. You do not ask in God's will. We say, I ask God all the time. Yeah, God, heal me. God, this. God, give me that. God, do this. God, help my job. God, help my kids get better grades. God, help my kids behave better because they're frustrating. And sometimes God wants some discipline in our life. And he wants some pruning in our life. But when we ask him, Lord, give me grace to cease sinning. Give me grace and the ability to share your gospel with my neighbors. Lord, give me the ability to forgive the person that I do not want to forgive. Give me the ability, Lord, to live in love. We ask not and we receive not because we ask amiss. We want a church that's flowing with love. We will have to be, we want a vineyard that is just amazing. We will have to be amazing individually. We want a church that gets a lot. We have to be individuals that ask a lot. What happens on a Sunday is nothing more than a, than a kind of a, um, 
showing of what is happening during the week. So what then? I'm thinking, my thoughts were turned to 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. It's one of a key life verses for me. I go back to it all the time, so it's not surprising that it found its way in here. Holy Spirit hit me with it again. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Every day that we're alive is a new opportunity. God's mercies and his love are new every morning. If we say that we are without sin, we call God a liar. We were given three very clear to-dos in 2 Chronicles that would apply to the situation we are in in our lives individually and now as a new manifestation of God's universal vineyard. Friends, we need to humble ourselves and not talk so much about what we are able to do and the skills that we have and what we bring to the table But we need to talk more. As Paul said, I will boast in my weaknesses and I will boast in the one who covers them. Humility. The more I learn about life, the more I realize how little I know and how humility is really, really a key discipline of the Holy Spirit's work. We need to pray. If my people will pray, and seek my face. The idea of continual prayer, of earnest prayer, of repetitious prayer, of a brokenness, a prayer that is open to God, begging God to reveal himself to us, to show himself. God is not honored when we say, Lord, if you can just give us just a little bit, just a teeny bit, a little bit, we'll be there. He's not honored. He wants to show himself in mighty ways, but he wants us to ask God does not love to force himself on people. In his sovereignty, he created the balance of his perfect will and our free will. He wants us to turn from our sins, our sins of pride, our sins of greed, whatever they are. Humility, praying and seeking God's face and turning from our sins. So now, does God help those who help themselves, or does God help those who ask? My prayer for me and for each of us here is that we truly become people that are dependent on the vine. If you care to pray with me, please kneel today as we pray.
Father God, we know that you are able. And that comforts our hearts. And that gives hope to our souls. And it gives energy to our lips and you know, kind of a movement to our feet. But we confess to you, Lord, now that just because you are able, we are so prone to want to be able as well. We have a desire to be like you in a sense of making our own decisions, making our own way, using you to get us started, but then to thank you for the help and the wind at our back and then to move along our merry way. Lord, confound that in us. Press upon us your Holy Spirit. Put people in our lives that won't let us think that way. Our friends, our spouses, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our co-workers, Lord, and your spirit itself directly into our hearts. Keep us from this evil path. Well, we are excited by what you long to do in your vineyards. We long, Lord, as we look forward to bear much fruit, to glorify your name. We ask you, Lord, humbly right now, help us to seek your face when we are prone to wander. Help us to confess our sin. Put on our hearts, put on our hearts a clear knowledge of our sin. Bring us into your word, bring us into your knowledge, and we lift up your name. We honor, we praise, we glorify you. And as we sing, Lord, help us to think that if we really can say, my Jesus, I really love you, because of the thorns that you wore, because of the life that you gave, we ask that we can live for you. In your son's name we do pray. Amen.